This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Alright, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And tonight... I'm going to look at verse 9. I mentioned this morning we've been uh, uh, just going through here one by one through the Beatitudes. And uh, this is basically uh, the last one, although we, get, we, 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 have, we have another one, but verse 10 is kind of a... <clears throat> oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a summation, I'm not using the right word there, but of, of all that Jesus said here, that there are everybody who lives godly is going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, so we've been going through looking at these different qualities, poor in spirit, those who mourn, uh, mourning over sin, uh, meekness, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers tonight. Um, qualities that are that belong to the saved person, the Christian. They are the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, one thing I've tried to point out, and you just say this before we pray, but one thing I've, I've tried to point out is that um, I think what Jesus is pointing out here is there is a radical difference between the children of the kingdom and the world. So he's, he's not just talking about natural abilities here um, that everybody might have. And uh, it's, it's not a command to, uh, you know, muster these things up within yourselves and uh, get her done, so to speak. Um, he's talking about characteristics that are unique to the redeemed, the children of God, Christians. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we do pray um, for your guidance here. We do pray for uh, enablement. Lord, we thank You for Your indwelling Spirit. And Lord, we pray, open our minds to uh, understand Your truth, to grasp these things. Lord, so that we may uh, appreciate all that You've done in our behalf, all that You are doing within us and working in us to will and to do. And Lord, so that as a result, our love for You may grow our desire to walk in obedience to You may grow. Uh, Lord, may our goal in all this um, be Your glory and honor. We thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I said, verse, verse 9 tonight, um, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Another, uh, again, another uh, incredible statement, uh, amazing statement, maybe I should say. It's not incredible in the literal sense. It is believable because it, come, it came from the words of, from the mouth of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers, again, a radical difference between Christians and the world. Um, this not only desire for peace, but uh, as we're going to see in a moment, an active uh, pursuit of peace. Now, 
I want to give you uh, something here before we really get started in that that helped me out, and I think uh, uh, you know will help you out as well. I just there 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 are various ways if you if you listen to to, to uh, different people preach on the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount as a as a whole. Or if you read uh, commentaries, you're going to find what you always find with Scripture. Come at it with uh, people come at it <clears throat> with a little bit different angles, and and uh, we're 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 taking God's word. And this is not a bad thing. I'm just I'm just saying it's it's a challenge. We're taking God's word. We're taking a sermon that Jesus preached to people, and uh, often what uh, theologians, commentators, uh, even you know just just Christians in general do when we try to understand. We're trying to get down to the heart of what Jesus is saying and how He says it. So, how He says it. So people look for structure. They look for a sort of uh, uh, general theme, outline, that kind of thing. And and when you read different people or hear them preach, um, you'll you'll hear, hear different versions. You know, because it's coming out of different personalities. Well, well, I think uh, you know Jesus starts here and He divides it up into two parts and goes there. And another guy will say, well, I think this is probably divisible into five parts and and uh, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm going to give you one, uh, I guess you could say, interpretation along those lines um, that I, I thought very helpful coming from, uh, and I'm inclined to believe it's right, but, you know, it's okay if it, 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 you may not think so, um, coming from... D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has often been called the greatest preacher of the 20th century. He was pastor of Westminster Chapel in uh, London for a long time. He was in the ministry for like 50 years, and I forget how long he pastored there, but it was a long time uh, through World War II and and all of that. He was was there. He was in London, you know, pastoring uh, when London was bombed by the Germans and Went through quite a bit of stuff, but but you know he's just one of those men gifted by God. He has uh, he had uh, good insight, and he was able to deliver that uh, in the pulpit as well. So uh, he was he was a well known preacher. But he offered this suggestion, and uh, in his comments on this, or actually sermon on this, and uh, and I wanted to pass it on. Um, this is a, a suggestion for the structure, okay? The structure of the Beatitudes. Um, as I mentioned this morning, there there is, uh, I think, a logical flow here, and and I've, you know, we've talked about that, or just really hinted at it as we've moved along. And I said something about that this morning. You know, if you're poor in spirit, for example, then you mourn over your sin, and and as the result, you are meek and. And as a result of that, you hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. So there's a logical flow to the Beatitudes. They're not just thrown out here in random, at random. Now, here's, here's the structure that uh, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that I thought was good. <coughs> we, we have here essentially seven Beatitudes. you got verses 3 through 5 are the first three. Verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lloyd-Jones suggests is the, uh, is the pinnacle, or you know, think of it as the watershed uh, verse. So in other words, you're coming up to that and then coming back down the other side kind of thing. If you just kind of picture that structure in your mind. So you have the first three leading up to verse 6. 
And then coming off of verse 6, you've got the final three. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. The first three uh, are primarily uh, focused on uh, disposition or, or the state of the believer. He's poor in spirit. He's a mourner. He's meek. And then you come, again, logically, all of that leads to verse 6. You know, you realize your own bankruptcy. You mourn over indwelling sin. You, you are meek in the sense that you have no, no reputation. And uh, you are in, brought into submission to the will of God. And so the result of that is you, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because you realize your own spiritual bankruptcy and, and your own indwelling sin and so forth, there's there's a a heart's cry for true righteousness for what is lacking in us, like I talked about when we when we did verse six. Um, we we realize that lack and we hunger for it. It's, it it is the, the 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 longing, the passion of the Christian, true righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to suggest that the final three, now you're coming down from the watershed or the pinnacle there, the the final three are essentially the result. In other words, you're, 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 you're talking about the state of the believer going up to the point of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And now you're talking about the result, basically, of being filled. So now, verse 7, they are merciful, they are pure in heart, and they are peacemakers. <clears throat> the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, have become, are now uh, also merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. Now, he also suggests that there is a direct correspondence between each one of the first three and each one of the second three. First three being verses three through five, the second three being verses seven, eight, and nine. That looks like this. There's a, and, and I'm not going to go through this in detail. I'm just going to give it to you. And, and, and so, like I say, you may want to take it and kind of ponder it. Um, verse three: Blessed are the poor in spirit. We will call that the. That's the first beatitude. Verse seven is the fourth. I'm sorry, the fifth beatitude. Uh, those two correspond. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who are poor in spirit become merciful. In other words, you, you realize your own spiritual bankruptcy and your own, you know, we talked about coming before God empty and having nothing. And so, um, you, you, you treat other people on that same basis. You, you and I in that situation, Needed, desired, mercy. And so that's how we deal with others. Our own spiritual bankruptcy produces mercy in us. So, so we become merciful as, and I say produces as a result of being filled, um, with righteousness. So four, verse four and verse eight again correlate. Blessed are those who mourn. And again, the idea is like you're mourning over uh, your own sin. You're mourning over sin in the world and, and so forth. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 8. Um, they are now pure in heart. The one, the one who suffers from 
indwelling sin and mourns because of that, now lives in a state of purity of heart. Okay, as a result of being filled with righteousness. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're no longer poor in spirit, that you're no longer a mourner, that you're no, no longer meek. I'm just saying there's a correlation here that they go hand in hand. They can be at the same time. But, but the fact that you mourn over your sin um, uh, is, is now carried over to uh, uh, pureness of heart. God, God has given us purity of heart in spite of our indwelling sin. Okay, verse 5 correlates with verse 9, which we're dealing with tonight. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. And he's again suggesting a a correlation between uh, the uh, disposition of meekness, the attitude of meekness, and the act of being a peacemaker. Because you're meek, because you uh, have no reputation of your own, because you desire no reputation, um, you're given over to the will of God. You can live for the glory of God in the sense that you seek, pursue peace among all. You don't feel like you have to get revenge. You don't feel like you have to uh, justify yourself or anything like that. You're now a peacemaker, and we'll get into that in a moment. So, that's, that's just a possible outline. And again, I thought it was interesting, and so I thought I'd pass it on. The, the first, the division is, you know, first three, then the middle one, the pinnacle being verse six, and then the last three beatitudes, and then of course the correlation between, between them. Now, I will say this, whether that is exactly right or wrong, I have no doubt that, uh, what Jesus is saying here makes perfect sense, and He's not just throwing out random words, okay? <laughs> so, that's, that's one reason people analyze these things the way they do, because they know that our Lord is not just, you know, just speaking vainly. I mean, he, everything that He says is worth analyzing. Everything that He says is, is worth whatever effort it takes. Okay, so verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... Sons of God. And I think primarily here, and let's, let's do the, the first part first, where we talk about the, the promise attached to it. I think primarily here we can probably look at this uh, with, uh, uh, in two ways. What, what is a peacemaker? Um, and, and that is a good translation of the word. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Peacemaker. What is, what is a peacemaker? So I, I'm thinking of it in, in these two aspects. Uh, Passively, which would probably be the way we would be most inclined to think of it, just naturally. But then also actively, which I think is suggested by the words of our Lord Himself. Let me give you a a definition here. First of all, from Marvin Vincent, um, he just says simply that the literal meaning is peacemakers. The founders and promoters of peace are meant, who not only keep the peace, but seek to bring men into harmony with each other. And that's why I say not, not, only, uh, not only being peaceable, let's say, although that is extremely important, but, uh, but also pursuing peace. Got a passive aspect and, a, and an active aspect. Tyndale 
um, rendered that phrase maintainers of peace. Calvin says it this way, By peacemakers, he means, Jesus means, those who not only seek peace and avoid quarrels as far as lies in their power, but who also labor to settle differences among others, who advise all men to live at peace and take away every occasion of hatred and strife. So you've got people actively uh, involved in... in um, uh, trying to, to remove strife and bring about peace. Spurgeon, here's a quote from Spurgeon. They are not only passively peaceful like the meek. He also seems to draw a, a uh, uh, correlation there between verse 5 and verse 9. They are not only passively peaceful like the meek, who keep the peace, but actively peaceful by endeavoring to end wars and contentions and so make peace. So you, you've, you can essentially boil it down to this. You've got the active pursuit of peace. Now certainly, again, that, that'll include a, a passive aspect, but it's not all passive. It's not all the way we would say it today. Appeasement. We're not, for example, we're not just talking about someone who will sit by and let injustice occur for the sake of peace. Um, again, to quote uh, Lloyd Jones, I wish I had the exact quote, but uh, but he called those kind of men flabby. Um, you know, he, he used the example of going to war. He said a lot, of, a lot of men, a lot of nations try to avoid going to war. He said the problem is, oftentimes when they do that, uh, they, they, are, they do it in an unjust manner. You know, they're willing to allow certain injustices to occur in order to avoid war. That's, that's not, not what we're talking about here. We're talking about actually pursuing peace by uh, ending the strife, bringing about reconciliation um, between ourselves and whoever uh, we, we may be at variance with and, and between others whenever possible. Not talking about, you know, going around butting into everybody's business, but there are times when, when we bear responsibility. Often that's the case in a church setting. Um, Lord willing, I'll come back to that in a moment. But there, there are times where we bear responsibility. Uh, well, all the time we bear responsibility to actively pursue peace among each other. There are different ways to go about that and, uh, and uh, you know, different ways to apply that. So, one aspect is passive. In other words, you just wouldn't want to be going out making trouble, right? And, and you want to resist evil. Um, insofar as you as you can, as Jesus commands us to do in the Sermon on the Mount itself. Also, this quote from Paul, from the Apostle Paul comes to mind. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, which seems to me to... Uh, to, to state the, the plain fact that you can't control everybody else's decisions, 
But as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, consider the words of Jesus for a moment. Let's just, let's just go a little further in the chapter here, in, uh, down to verse 38. Because I think this is a, a, a great description of a peacemaker. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to, resi- not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, I think you can see the, the passive and the active here because if, any, if anyone wants to slap you, Jesus is basically saying, for the sake of righteousness, and, uh, and again, this, you know, there, this, this has to be rightly applied, and I don't, know, I don't know that we can go into all that tonight, but this has to be rightly applied. I'm, it, it, again, it does not include injustice, so I wouldn't uh, suggest allowing a criminal act of some sort uh, in the name of, of uh, obeying Jesus here. Um, you wouldn't want to see somebody just stand by and watch somebody snatch somebody's purse, for example, and, and say, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm a peacemaker and I, I didn't want to intervene. Um, no, you probably want to do something about that. But when it's when it's you, when it's your reputation at stake, you can passively allow them to get the upper hand, so to speak. It's okay because uh, what it will probably do is aid you in killing the flesh. <clears throat> I remember. Uh, just a just a bad example first. Um, now I never was a I never was a brawler. Um, it's probably a good thing, you know. I'd probably I'd probably have a lot more broken bones and stuff than I had <laughs> if I had been. But I, I I never was that. But you know, everybody um, no, nobody likes to be taken advantage of, and and, uh, and then there's just you know I mean. Especially without the Lord, you, you, you're just full of pride and all that kind of thing. And I remember, for example, and this was actually right after I was saved, but, but um, I mean, it was just almost immediately after I was saved. Um, and so there was a, a, I can see a difference, but, it, but there was a struggle between the old and the new, so to speak. But when I, when I was saved, we were working full time. In the uh, in the bars, and you know, we we call them honky tonks. Sometimes I say that people don't know what you're talking about, but that's what we call them. <clears throat> um, and you know, I was doing that full time, like five, six, sometimes seven nights a week. So the other two guys uh, in the group were, of course, dependent on me. And so when I was saved, my my first thought was, um, I'm going to fulfill all of the obligations we had because we were booked. I don't know, two or three months in advance. Not not very far, but two or three months in advance. So I thought I feel fulfill all the obligations we have, and then I'll back out because I knew <laughs> nobody had to tell me to quit it. I mean, I knew it was crystal clear in my mind that the, the Lord didn't want me to do this any longer. Um, the good news for me was, I mean, I didn't realize it then, but uh, in the in the car wreck I was in, my shoulder was broke, and uh, <clears throat> the doctor. Uh, just making conversation, asking me what I do for a living and all that, because now I've got a broken clavicle bone. And, and I told him what I did and what I was going to do, what my plans were. 
And he just chuckled and he said, with that shoulder, you're not picking up a base. And uh, I, I said, well, I, I sit on a stool, you know, if I have to, and just hold it in my lap and play. And he said, no, you don't understand. You're not, you're not going to be able to move your arm good. That's going to be painful. And uh, he was right. So, so I, I didn't fulfill any of the obligations we had. The Lord, the Lord took care of that, um, took me right out of there. But here's the thing that happened. I was out of the picture. The other two guys found guys to play with. Uh, one of them was a drummer that was working with us at the time, and uh, he uh, um, confiscated, I guess, <laughs> a couple of my microphones and cords, and uh, I guess he thought he inherited them. I don't know, but uh, he, he took them, and, and he started playing with a guy that was popular in the area, and uh, they were working at this club over on Linwood. And when I, I don't remember how I came to realize it, but uh, I guess when I was trying to gather up my stuff. And so Leslie and I went over to this bar, and uh, I said, uh, wait in the car, and I'll, uh, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> and I went in, and these guys were rehearsing. They weren't open for business yet, but the door was unlocked. These guys were all rehearsing, about five, about five guys, I guess. And, and you know, he's drumming. Had, and when I come in, when I'm coming up the thing, I can see my microphones on his drums. You know, he's got his drums mic. And uh, so I, I come walking up. Like I say, they're not open for business, so there's nobody else there. And they see me coming, and they're, at first they're kind of like, hey, what's up? How's it going? That kind of thing. And, but I didn't speak to them. I, just, I walked up on stage, and I started unplugging my mics and wrapping up my cords. And the rest of those guys were just standing there, you know, Shocked, and I wrapped them up and left. And uh, uh, I wasn't about, well, I, I, I can see a difference, but I was still having trouble being taken advantage of. When, to tell you the truth, I, I mean, uh, it, it wouldn't have killed me, you know, to do what Jesus says here. He says, look, <laughs> you think you need them that bad? Take them. Take them. I'm just glad to be saved. <laughs> if, you, if you want the mics, have them. Have them. I'll donate them. And then you won't have to feel guilty about taking them. Um, not that he did. I don't know. Maybe he did, did or didn't. That's just one bad example. But, the, you know, and, and I remember that, I guess, to this day because of, of the just having a different perspective. Another example comes years later, and this has, just has more to do with the reputation in a church situation we were in, and uh, there was all kinds of, of uh, talk going around about us, um, mostly because of the uh, reform doctrine, uh, you know, and, and, and nobody, I, honestly, I don't say this in a mean way, but it's, it appeared to me that nobody wanted to take the time to try to understand, you know, what we were teaching and, and believing, and there was just a lot of reaction and uh, it, it, I had dealt with the uh, leadership of our church and told them what we were doing, why we were leaving, and so on. Tried, tried to, I mean, we prayed and we tried to do everything right when we left that movement. Unfortunately, the, the, the people, the congregation, didn't get much of an explanation because we were asked not to explain. So, uh, and, and then, like I say, they didn't take it upon themselves to come ask. 
So, uh, so all this talk started circulating, and it hurt. And then uh, I find out that a that a local pastor who I you know I had worked with and all made statements from the pulpit at his church in Bossier about what we were doing, alleging that we were trying to destroy the church, destroy the church. Now, here's the thing, and I think this is one reason it's so important to be a peacemaker. I remember years ago, uh, Mike Harris, who some of you know, he's been here and preached, got a got some kind of a ticket. I don't remember what it was for, speeding, running stop sign. <laughs> I don't know what he did. I don't remember. But he, he was struck by the fact that, I, I think it was written on the ticket, it, it, the way that it worded the charge was that you were disturbing the peace of, you know, our society or whatever. And Mike really took that to heart. I mean, because Christians are peacemakers, you know. So he didn't try to, like, defend himself like I wasn't doing wrong, but he did explain to the judge, the last thing I wanted to do was disturb the peace when he went and paid his fine. Well, similarly, when I hear the charge, you know, they're trying to destroy the church. To me, that's a very serious, serious matter. That's a serious charge. And our heart was, that's the last thing. The last thing we're trying to do is destroy the church. Uh, In fact, we had worked, we felt like we had worked very hard to be peacemakers even in the midst of that turmoil. So here's what we did. Um, and, and we, again, we prayed about this and we tried our best to do the right thing. I, I still think today that, uh, technically speaking, we, we did the right thing. What, what I did was wrote a letter to all the members of those churches. Because, again, like I say, they had not taken the initiative to come and, and ask, you know, what's going on here, which I felt like they should have done if they were going to be, uh, you know, circulating stories. And the result was that that pastor wound up, uh, at least this is what I was told, the result was that that pastor wound up, wound up getting up and apologizing publicly for the statements that he made. But I mean, we, we wrote very carefully, <clears throat> penned the letter. Uh, of course, the first draft, Brother Carl, was about six pages or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but we got it down to about a paragraph or two, I think, before we actually mailed it. But, you know, when you're first going over those things, uh, uh, you think of a lot of things to say. But uh, we did everything that we could to do the right thing. I, I think we did, but let me say this. And this is the reason I bring that up. Even in spite of working hard to do the right thing, and, and I think doing the right thing in a technical sense, I still look back on that and think, what difference does it make? What I'm saying is this. What was at stake, it seems like, essentially, was our reputation. And, and this is exactly what I think what Jesus is meaning by the meek in verse 5. And the peacemakers in verse 10, this, they're meek. They're meek. This is not, their own reputation is not the all-important thing to them. So they are able to withstand the kind of assaults we just read about in verse 
uh, 39 and verse 40. In verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him to uh, give to him who asks of you, so forth. Or verse 38 and 39. Uh, yeah, whoever, verse 39, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. They're able to withstand these kinds of assaults because they are meek, because they are like our Lord. They have given up their reputation. Jesus emptied Himself, Philippians 2 says. Took on the form of a slave, a servant. He became a human being. Now, if He was willing to do that, I mean, uh, we ought to be willing to follow His example and, and take assaults. Now, let me get to verse 40 and, and uh, I'm sorry, 41 and 42, because this is where it gets more active. Whoever compels you to go one mile, now he's talking about people asking of you, and and possibly I think I think you could include in here now asking of you, perhaps unreasonable things sometimes, not because everybody does that. You know, we all prone to do that from time to time, have unreasonable expectations of other people. So somebody asks you to go a mile, and what does Jesus say? You go with them too. You go two miles with them. In verse 42, to him who asks you, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In verse 40, which I didn't mean to skip, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So it becomes active. You're giving up what they're asking for, but then you're also Piling on top of that. Now, like I say, there, there, are, there are various ways this would play out in, in uh, specific situations. And, and I, I think, uh, I don't know if you can come up with an across-the-board rule, but you just pray for wisdom in every situation. Lord, what is the right outcome here? Um, but I think the question should be this, Lord, what is at stake here? Is it your glory? Lord, if your glory's at stake and you and you would, you know, have me do whatever, which is it's probably going to be something like this: go the second mile, <laughs> give your cloak in addition to your tunic. If your glory's at stake, and show me how to respond. If it's my reputation, and really that's all that's on the line, then then Lord, uh, you know, just give me wisdom to forget about it. And press on. And do what Jesus said. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who are spiteful and who use you. See, there's the, there's the, the passive aspect. In other words, you endure wrong, but it doesn't stop there. You're a, you're a peacemaker, a peace maintainer. You're, or let's say it this way, you're a peace pursuer. So, so it doesn't stop with enduring the wrong. It, it goes further, actively pursuing correcting the wrong. Not, not in a vengeful way. Not, not in a, necessarily in a, in a way to uh, maintain your own reputation. But in a way to bring about reconciliation. Now, first and foremost, 
The goal of the Christian has to be, and I'm talking about with other people in view, first and foremost, the goal of the Christian has to be reconciliation to God. Our, our greatest desire for people out there is that they be reconciled to God. So we're, first of all, we're peacemakers in that sense. That, that is priority. I want my life lived in such a way that other people would be encouraged to enter a peaceful relationship with God. I want, I want to persuade them. I want to say like Paul, you know, we persuade you. The love of Christ compels us. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to Christ. That's, that's the primary objective of a peacemaker. To bring people into right relationship to God. Think of the words of James, for example. Sobering statement. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs says, he that wins souls is wise. That's, that's the primary objective of the Christian in regards to other people. The primary objective as a peacemaker. To get people into right relationship with God. And, boy, there's so many passages you, you could go to in regard to the church. Let me... Uh, i give you, I think, one here. Romans chapter 12. And, I, and I'm just trying to give you some practical ways to, to uh, play this out here. Romans chapter 12. I, I think this is a good description of a peacemaker, a peace maintainer, a peace pursuer. <clears throat> Romans 12:17. Now, Paul is here speaking to church, church at Rome. Repay no one evil for evil. That's what we were talking about a moment ago. There's no vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You don't have to return evil for evil. Verse 17 again. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. You hear that? But do not avenge yourselves. Why? Rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One of the best um, um, applications of that, you know, for, for uh, uh, just, just for right thinking in that regard, came from Brother Carl, one of the best ones I've heard. Um, I don't know if you were talking about this verse, but I, mean, I think you were talking about this idea. And this was probably 10, 12 years ago. I was here for a revival meeting, or, or 8 or 10 years ago. And Brother Carl raised the question, if someone wrongs you, here's a couple of things to think about. If somewhere down the line they repent and come to Christ, then Christ has paid for their sin, including their sin against you, right? 
And Brother Carl asked the question, is that enough? Is what Jesus did at Calvary enough? Or do you, you feel like you need more? That doesn't satisfy you. On the other hand, if they never repent, repent and they perish and they spend eternity in hell for all of their sins, including their sin against you, is that enough? Or do you think you need to get more blood out of them somehow? Something to think about, isn't it? So Paul says, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. If there's any revenge necessary, God will do it. Be assured of this thing. This is, this is one of the great, the great hopes that uh, the Christian has. There, there's coming a day, we've talked about this, when all things will be set right. And I'm not saying we ought to be going around you know, longing for and rejoicing uh, at the thought of the perishing of the wicked. That would, that would be a wrong spirit. I think we ought to desire their salvation. But, at the same time, nevertheless, all things will be set right eventually. God is just. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, and here Paul uh, quotes from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's good, isn't it? That ought to be in the Bible. I mean, that's like God's very words right there. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. If your enemy is hungry, here's the active aspect. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Feed him. That's, that's what a peacemaker does. Now, think about it. Now, we're not talking about uh, your best friend here. That would be easy, wouldn't it? If your best friend is hungry, feed him. If your daughter is hungry, feed her. If your wife is hungry, feed her. No, that's not what he's saying. I mean, he's assuming anybody would do that. Your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. I heard a, a great illustration the other day of Jay Adams. He's a well-known uh, counselor, Christian counselor. Had a man come to him one time, and and a true story from what I, what I understand. But a, a man came to him one time uh, wanting, quote, marriage counseling, although he'd made his mind up. He was going to divorce his wife, and he was looking for counseling. Um and, of course, Jay Adams told him, you know, what the Scripture says. Husbands, love your wives. Love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here's the mandate. Love your wife. He said, well, you, you don't understand. You don't understand. I don't, I don't love her anymore. The love is gone. And Jay Adams said, well, here's what you do. You can't... You can't Live with her as man and wife. You can't love her anymore. The guy says, that's right. So I'll tell you what you do. Move out. And move next door. 
And Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> so you move next door and then you see if you can love her as a neighbor. Love her as yourself. And the guy, you know, just uh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't, you know, I really don't. I really don't love her. I mean, I know that's nothing's going to work. And Jay Adams said, "Do I detect a little enmity here?" <laughs> and the guy said, "Yes, yes. The love is gone. We can't stand each other." And Jay Adams said, "You know, Jesus said, love your enemy. Love your enemy." Now, what he was telling him is, if you're a Christian man, you've got a mandate. Love your wife. And there's no way out of it. You can move next door. She's your neighbor. You still got to love her. If, if she's your enemy, you still got to love her. Jesus said, love your enemy. Love your enemy. So, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's an amazing statement. I, I think that's really uh, meant to be a, a help. I've heard different explanations for that. Let me give you one. Uh, but, you know, I used to read that years ago. I mean, this, this is a possibility, but I used to read that years ago, and I think, well, now what does that mean? Does that, does that mean that you're, you're, it's like judgment? You're pouring, in, in a sense, because you're being nice to the guy, he's, he's getting greater and greater condemnation. Um, that, that's probably true in some respect, but, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that's what... Uh, is actually being taught here. Let me let me give you uh, uh, another another uh, understanding here. This is coming from Matthew Henry. Um, it will be a likely means to win upon them and bring them over to to be reconciled to us. We shall mollify them as the refiner melts the metal in the crucible. Not only by putting it over the fire, but by heaping coals of fire upon it. So he's suggesting when you be nice, when you do these things to your enemy, that it's going to have, in a sense, now it's going to have a purifying effect. In other words, it's just going to affect them in a way that they cannot ignore. The way, Matthew Henry says, the way to turn an enemy into a friend is to act towards him in a friendly manner. Now, that's, that's actively pursuing peace. Because you could just stand back and say, well, I guess we're just enemies and that's the way it's always going to be. But, Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. The way to make a friend out of an en- enemy is to act friendly him. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So, you've got a passive aspect and you've got an, an active aspect. But the whole idea is this, that we actively... I know this, that sounds kind of contradictory, but whether, whether it's in a passive manner, <laughs> like, like you're just allowing, uh, for example, um, allowing somebody to do you wrong, or whether it's in an active manner where you're actually going out and doing good to them. Either way, the attitude is, I'm actively pursuing peace with this person. So, the peacemakers are those who actively pursue peace. 
And Jesus is saying, these again are the truly happy ones. Happy are the peacemakers, people who are occupied with actively pursuing peace. They're, they're about the business of reconciling, reconciling sinners to God, reconciling people in the church. I don't have time to go there, but you can, you can go to Matthew 18. Uh, again, we're not talking about a, appeasement or allowing injustice. If you go to Matthew 18, you'll see instructions there for church discipline given by Jesus Himself. That is a, it's, it's discipline and it's harsh in a sense. Hard thing to go through that. But that is a way of pursuing peace in the church. It, it, so we're not talking about just strictly passivity or, or appeasement or compromise. We mean actively pursuing peace among all men in whatever particular way may be necessary in a particular circumstance. And happier are the people who do that, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know why? Because God is a God of peace. He's the ultimate peacemaker. Now, let's just think about this last point we made about loving our enemies. Paul says in Romans, the natural mind, now that, that's us without Christ. The natural mind is at enmity with God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's the state of a lost person, an unregenerate man. He's not simply confused. He may be confused, but he's not, he's not merely confused or misguided. He's not seeking God, but looking in the wrong places. Looking for love in all the wrong places, you know, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm saying this because this is a, a popular misconception today. Everybody out there is seeking God. No, they're not. They're seeking. They're self-seeking. Same way you and I were. They're not seeking God. They're at war with God. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you, some of them wouldn't articulate it that way. They're not aware of it in that way. But that's the heart of their problem. Like we talked about this morning. What, what's what's the, the center of all of our troubles? It's the human heart, Right? And their heart is at variance with God. It's at enmity with God. The natural mind, the heart, the unregenerate heart, the impure, defiled, deceitful heart is at war with God. Hates God. You talk to people sometimes, you witness to them, you share the truth with them, and they say say things, well, you know, I just don't believe God's that way. You know what they're really saying? I don't like that God. I, I like this one better. The one I've got up in my head. The one I've conjured up. The one I've imagined. If you're telling me, if the, if the Bible's telling me God is this, this, and this, I don't like that. I don't like that God. They're at war with God. And what does God do? While we were yet Enemies, right? Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's active peacemaking. And you've heard me say it several times. What salvation is, 
is reconciliation. It is God reconciling us to Himself in Christ. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And it's because of that, because He's the God of peace, because He Himself is a peacemaker, because it is the Spirit of God Himself that produces these qualities in us, that we also are peacemakers. This is, this is a characteristic, another mark of the true Christian. Poor in spirit, mourn over their sin or over sin in general. Meek, not out to make a reputation. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Merciful, because we are receivers, recipients of mercy. Pure in heart. Peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers because they bear a resemblance to God. They're, they're, people are going to recognize there's a family resemblance. They'll be called the sons of God. In fact, Jesus says that further down. We don't have... Well, verse 45, 44 and 45, if you want to look at it uh, yourself, talks about God uh, doing good uh, to the unjust. And Jesus says, uh, this is what we're to do so that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. Happy are the peacemakers, those who actively pursue peace, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, again thank You for Your truth, for the privilege of being able to proclaim it, and for the privilege of hearing. Lord, we thank You for Your work within us as a church, as a body uh, of people. We thank You for Your work within us as individuals. Renewing our minds, cleansing, sanctifying, separating us from the world, radically changing us so that we think different, so that we act different. And Lord, thank You for um, making us partakers of Your divine nature. Thank You for Your presence within us, working to will and to do of Your good pleasure. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.